Our mothers always told us that it takes two to fight. But Ogden Nash added, in real life, it only takes one to make a quarrel. And John Kennedy, putting it still another way, said, it takes two to make peace. Peace is one of those qualities that is as treasured as it is elusive. This weekend, our nation particularly remembers our veterans who have served this nation during peace and war, often at great personal expense in order to bring about peace for us who sit here today. But for many of our world's inhabitants this morning, their experience is not one of peace. Whether it's in Iraq or Bosnia, whether it's in Central Africa or in various parts of South America, as we were hearing from Peter McMillan last weekend, peace is delicate indeed. In our own country, in the elections that have just ended, I mentioned how they were peaceful, but there was language used which reflected social strife, anyway. Language of angry white males, victimization, class warfare. Not to sound cold-hearted, but news of strife around the world, or even in our own country, does not particularly surprise the Christian. We understand that people were made to know God, to relate to him, is our creator and Lord. And that when that is not done, selfishness inevitably leads to conflict. So while we sympathize with those who struggle, while many Christians may be involved in struggle in this world ourselves, we're not surprised to see the fighting in different ways as it goes on in our world. We feel that we understand something of the roots of it all. But it's not that way so much when it comes to the church. Quarrels among Christians have the power to confuse and to confound us, to discourage us and even cause us to despair as few other things have. In a religion of love, as Christianity claims to be, how can there be such unloving realities, which we have all experienced among Christians, perhaps even in churches, perhaps even in this church? That's exactly what James wants to talk to us about this morning. Our passage is found in chapters 3 and 4 of James's letter. That's on pages 1,267 and 1,268 of your pew Bibles, and you'll be well advised to keep it open during the message to help your understanding and your attention span. We want to hear what James has to say as he tracks down the reasons for such a jarring and disturbing problem as quarreling among Christians. In this passage, James writes clearly and directly about fighting words, fake wisdom, and proud hearts. Let's follow him as he talks first about, for those of you who are taking notes, I'll break it down for you right now. First about our words in chapter 3, the first half there, verses 1 to 12. And then about our minds in chapter 3, the second half, verses 13 to 18. And finally about our hearts in the first half of chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. 
And let's see if we can hear what James would teach us, not only in order to understand our own quarreling, but to end it. First, about our words. It seems that the quarrels among these early Christians were showing themselves in fighting words. Look with me there in chapter 3, verse 1. James speaks very directly here about our words. He begins by speaking about the importance of words. He writes, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. Now, we can't say exactly what the problem was that James, this church he was writing to, was uh, trying to counteract. But it may well have been that a number of people were presenting themselves as teachers, but whose speech was anything but edifying. Perhaps uh, the idea that people could be saved by a faith that wasn't so active an idea that James was attacking in the first couple of chapters, as we've seen in this study, well, perhaps that idea that people could be saved by an inactive faith allowed lots of people just to set themselves up as teachers. didn't matter how they lived. Lots of people, after all, can get up and just talk. Well, maybe that was going on in James's church, in this church that he's writing to. Maybe there were many people who were just setting themselves up to teach, regardless of the way they were living. Anyway, this is a dangerous situation, he says, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Those of us who presume to speak God's word must know that our words will be more more closely scrutinized than others. And certainly by those around us, but even more importantly, by God himself. You've heard of that poem, perhaps, words are things of little cost, Quickly spoken, quickly lost. We forget them. But they stand witnesses at God's right hand. Our words are important because we will be judged for them. Also, it seems our words are important because they're a crucial indicator of our whole persons, of what we're like. James got this from Jesus, you know. It's no new idea with James. Jesus said, listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth and goes goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. and The evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart his mouth speaks." 
Jesus was clear on this. Our words are important because our words reveal us. They show us for who we are. That's why James can say here, if anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. Now, uh, this uh, lets us seem a bit unlikely to his readers, this, this claim that the controlling the tongue is a good indicator of whether or not somebody can control his whole body. James gives a list in verses 3 to 5 of examples of small things that have great effects. So look at verse 3. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. Some of you here have uh, probably heard of the butterfly effect. Uh, I read about it some years ago, as far as I can tell uh, from my memory, as far as I can remember. It's a mathematical model that showed that how a butterfly's wing flapping somewhere in East Africa could, given the right meteorological conditions, by the change of air pressure that it causes, cause tidal waves in the Pacific. Something small, having a tremendous effect. Well, James's claim about the importance of the tongue may surprise at first, but we all have much experience, he says, that shows the importance that small things can have by their great effects. We see this in our own experience. Large things like horses, huge things like ships, gigantic things like forests can be affected by small things, by a small metal bit in a horse's mouth, a small wooden rudder back of a ship, a tiny spark of flame. We recognize the reality of this. Small things can have a great effect. So words are important, not just for their revelation of us, but for the tremendous effect they have on other people. Wise speech is from God, and it brings unity. But James here, you know, is not simply extolling the power of the tongue. He is warning of the power of the tongue. He assumes that it can be used for good, but he knows that it is often used for evil. So he writes here in verse 6, The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Wow, James here really takes quite a dim view of the tongue, wouldn't you say? I mean, he looks at it and it just seems like he deplores it. With some, some vivid images here, he explores its destructive potential. I mean, look at these images. It is a fire, a world of evil. It corrupts. It sets on fire. It is set on fire by hell. It is untamable, a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now, we all know that the tongue can cause pain. That's no news to us. For being such a, a small, yielding, even soft part of the body, there's no doubt that it can inflict the sharpest of wounds. 
even as I say that. You may think of some examples from your own life. And yet we know that the tongue can also be a source of great good, of encouragement, of exhortation, of instruction, of guidance. So why the negative tone here? Well, James seemed to know of some specific trouble. Look in verse 9. We read about it there. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. As Eugene Peterson puts it, you're not going to dip into a polluted mud hole and get a cup of clear, cool water. It's as if James knows, either generally or particularly about the Christians that he's writing to, that too often the mouth refuses the natural order that even the springs and the trees abide by. They have one nature and they reflect that. But it seems like the the mouth denies this. And lives inconsistently and double-mindedly, as James says elsewhere. He's saying that you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out the destruction that this very instrument which we use sometimes to praise God can cause when we use it other times to curse those who bear this God's very image. Such an inconsistent use of the tongue will bring nothing but trouble, he says. And we need to hear this warning about the destructive power of words. Because as forgettable as some words can be, and in this town we know much of forgettable words, others have a power to cut and wound so deeply that it may feel like the harm will never be undone. We may be thinking even right now, we may even be hearing some words or phrases echoing in our minds from the past. Perhaps even recalling the exact tones and inflections in which the words were spoken. We know how false that children's rhyme is. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never harm me. And I think there's a particular warning here that we need to hear from James about hypocrisy. It is, after all, not anyone that James is warning about talking this way. It is Christians talking about their fellow Christians. That's what James is writing about. It is their fellow Christians who seem to be cursing some of them, whose mouths are busy with the praise of God only some moments before. Oh, friends, what words will you speak mere minutes after the praises of God that you've sung this morning stop? And are still echoing in this very room. As you have a a private word with one another down at the potluck afterwards. Or perhaps tomorrow morning as you talk to someone else about the members meeting tonight. What will you say to each other? Whatever it is. It is your testimony about the truth of the gospel. And particularly James is following Jesus. Your words tell the truth about yourself. Do not miss what that means. With what real understanding can you praise God 
If you can so deride those made in his image, the very one you've intended to praise in your hymns has, albeit in a dim way, appeared to you and you've dismissed him. Perhaps even with a sharp and ridiculing word. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. So much for the tongue's part in our quarreling. Next, James in moves more close, moves in more closely to investigate our minds as he speaks some home truths about fake wisdom. Look with me in verses 13 and following. James is turning here from our tongues to our minds, from our words to our wisdom. As I say, it seems like some of the teachers in the church may have been trying to justify the quarrels they created. Perhaps they said that it was in their wisdom that they derided others. But said James, if this is the kind of wisdom these teachers are giving out, well, all wisdom is not created equal. It's not all the same thing. Just like James has shown in chapter 1, there are two kinds of trials. Those that are from God to test your faith and those that are actually temptations to evil from yourself. Just as he's shown there are two kinds of religion in the second half of chapter 1, that which is worthless and that which is valuable to God. Just as he's shown there are two kinds of faith in chapter 2, that which is active and alive and that which is inactive and dead. So here, James is showing there are two kinds of wisdom, and you can tell them apart. Not by the way they talk, but by the way they live. There is first this fake wisdom. Look at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his life. Verse 14. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. So to those among them who are claiming to be wise and understanding, James simply says, prove it. Prove it. Let him show it by his life. I don't care if these teachers can quote Emil Brunner, W.T. Connor, Jonathan Gerstner, and Jonathan Edwards all in the same breath. If they don't live it in their lives, they have no evidence of godly wisdom. They may boast about their wisdom, but if the evidence of their lives is giving these folk away. James says the evidence of their lives is putrid. It stinks. Hearts which harbor bitter envy, selfish ambition, worldliness, sensuality, pride. Envy seems to be a telltale sign of this kind of fake wisdom. Such envy isn't good for us, and it certainly makes us unpleasant to those we're around. It too easily degenerates into a kind of malice. In one sense, you know, every bit of envy is an attack on God and his gifts, as if he's got it wrong. We know a better way that he should have done it. Envy, you know, begins in pride. It lives in covetousness, and it ends in a discontent which finally sinks a person and those around him. As one person has said, it is hateful to God, prejudicial to others, troublesome to ourselves. It is its own punishment. And we shouldn't think that envy can't occur in a church. 
Friends, even among different ministries in a church, if you can grieve at others' success, if you can rejoice at others' difficulties, if you find yourself not wanting to share what God has given to you, then you must conclude that you're envious. But there shouldn't be envy and selfish ambition among those who have all been bought by the blood of Christ. It won't help any of us. This disorder and evil, of the quarreling which you see here in James's letter that he's writing about, this is typical of the counterfeit wisdom, of the imitation understanding of the gospel. And you all should know better than to not recognize where this disorder comes from. Uh, these things come from down below. From the great chief of evil, the one who has himself tried to disorder order the whole universe out of allegiance to God. The archbishop of ambition. The epitome of envy. The boasting, lying, self-deceived devil himself. So it is no surprise that those who are supplied by him and his stock of wisdom look like him. Christians should know that this is not the real stuff. This is not real wisdom. To find real wisdom, look at me again at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. So real wisdom, James is saying, is not determined by claiming, but by living. Let him show it by his good life, a life marked by deeds done in humility. Now, again, this is not a city that cultivates humility as a virtue. I'm reminded in this post-election season of the Roman who, when he was beaten in an election, said with no sarcasm that he was glad that his country had so many better men than himself. That's the kind of attitude that we need to have in humility. Our lives are to be marked by a humility which shows itself in purity, in loving peace, being considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. This is the kind of life which evidences God's kind of wisdom. And the fruit of such peacemakers' lives may not be immediately evident. You can cause division much more quickly than you can sow peace. But those who sow in peace, he says, will raise a harvest of righteousness. Now, such peacemaking can be as difficult as it is simple. Think of two children playing together. Both of them have one toy as the object of their affection at that moment. They both want that one toy. Well, what's the answer? Well, if the parent's around, the parent can come in and take it away and say, no, until you all can learn to play without it, then you just you know, can learn to play with it well, then you just can't play with it at all. But let's take the parent out. Let's just leave the two kids there with a the toy. What can happen? Well, peacemaking will happen when that one gives up his right to the other and happily allows the other one to play with that toy. He sacrifices his legitimate claim. 
That's often what peacemaking entails. Not always. But it often entails some kind of self-sacrifice on our part. So, friend, I would ask you, how is God calling you? If you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, how is God calling you to be a peacemaker? In your home. In your church. We are to stop being quake makers and start being peacemakers. We're to be shock absorbers and unity builders. We're not to be the kind of person that if somebody phones us with some bad or disturbing news, we get it out to everybody and cause a big problem. No, what we're to labor to do is to be like Christ has been for us. We are to take the bad and absorb it and work for the good of the body around us. You know, a debilitating illness often causes a breakdown in bodily functions working together. Much disease, after all, is simply the irregular functioning of some part of the body in ways that other parts of the body can't handle. So cancer is really growth run amok. Immune disorders leave the body overly welcoming to outside influences. True wisdom takes into account an action's effects on other parts of the body. Even as false wisdom shows itself by destroying the body, so real wisdom shows itself over time. You have to be patient to see it. But real wisdom shows itself by its concern for the building up and the developing of the body. So real wisdom isn't what our new age is presenting it as being so often. Some individualistic, esoteric revelation. No, true wisdom, according to the Bible, is edifying. It builds up, not just the individual involved in it, but those around. That is the nature of God's kind of wisdom. So the appropriate athletic image, if you want an athletic image for this kind of real wisdom, is not one of bodybuilding, but of basketball. It's not one of something which is only done for yourself, and that to no obvious purpose. But it's done specifically for a team for others, for some particular goals that are to be reached. That would be the way we would grasp this. Real wisdom evidences itself, not simply in your own perception of your own spiritual well-being, but on the, in, in the obvious effect that your life is having on the lives of those around you. That's how real wisdom, says Jane, evidences itself. It's not just how many Bible verses you can quote or what insightful comment you feel you can give about something. It is on the effect your life is having on the lives of those around you and particularly in the church. That's what James is saying here. Wisdom shows itself by the concern to give oneself for the building up of the body of Christ, the community which is composed of the family of faith, which is the local church. This is why I'm so concerned for membership commitment and for participation in the life of the church. It's because it's too easy, especially in a congregation of this size, to simply come in, sit, religiously consume for an hour, an hour and a half, and then go out without you ever being able to tell what's up with you spiritually. And a lot of the way that God built for you to be able to tell that is by being involved with cussed, ornery people like me and like everybody else in this church. Because it's by your ability to get around along with other people like that that you evidence some modicum of understanding of what God has to put up with for you. That's why God has churches, so that we can understand that. 
so that we can have a reality check when our mind begins to run away with us and tell us what wonderfully spiritual beings we are because of all the understanding that we have. And how important it is for leaders of a church to take this to heart. If you are a leader in this congregation or another one, or to others in the future to come, you must know that the wisdom that God desires you to have is wisdom in Scripture. Definitely. I'll never speak against that. But it must never stop there. It must show itself in your life. You must have a self-giving concern for the building up of the body. As Paul said, do nothing. Do nothing. Out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility... Think of others before yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So much for the mindset. Now James focuses in even more tightly on the source of the problems, the proud heart. James has considered our tongues and our minds. Now he turns to our hearts. I don't know about you, but... When I look back sometimes over disputes and quarrels that I've been a part of, I can wonder what all the fuss was about. E.M. Forster said, most quarrels are inevitable at the time. Incredible afterwards. But they do seem inevitable at the time. The weight of our wants, the gravity of our desires, the pull of our heart seems irresistible. And so we challenge and contest, we quarrel and we fight. Well, the ultimate cause and source of quarrel, says James, is selfish pride instead of a humble heart. This is what he identifies as the core problem, a lack of humility. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he calls to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. They want, lust, kill, covet, desire to have, quarrel and fight. And doesn't that sound like the fruit of hellish wisdom? If you were going to write a play or write some novel and have a description of it of hellish wisdom, wouldn't that be it? That's exactly the kind of thing that would happen. They want what they can't have. They have conflicting passions. They could even wish someone's removal by death because they are so unsatisfied in their longings. Desires, wants, pleasures, friendship with the world, pride. These are the real problems, says James. Never mind what they're arguing about. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting for a moment that godly brothers and sisters cannot disagree. I'm the pastor of a Baptist church. I know they can We're having a members meeting tonight. Godly brothers and sisters can disagree. I understand that. But what James is talking about here is not that. He is not writing about a loving, godly disagreement, as difficult as those may be. James is writing about a situation 
in which there is quarreling and fighting because something is off in the heart. Something is not going quite right inside. Because there are desires that are wrong. Because there are wants that are wrong. Because there are motives that are wrong. Because there are pleasures that are wrong. Because there are there is an attraction to the world that is wrong. In all of these ways, James is warning Christians against an over-regard for self. All of this quarreling isn't simply about the issues people say they're quarreling about. The tongue is simply expressing what the mind thinks of as wisdom, and the mind is simply thinking as the heart is inclined. And that is, too often, says James, to itself. Friend, any time you're involved in a dispute, ask yourself the question, where is my self-interest in this? And what would me being more humble do to this dispute? Would there be less quarrels in the body? James seems to know that the answer is clearly yes. So what do we do? When we've tracked down the culprit of pride to his lair in our evil hearts, well, it's interesting if you look at verse 4. James clearly resolves these questions ultimately into the question of our relationship with God. How do we relate to him? And here's his core answer in verse 7. Submit yourselves then. He doesn't say to each other. Isn't that interesting? We might expect if the problem is quarreling in a church, James is going to tell us to submit ourselves to each other. Very interesting. I think he goes for the core here. He says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. In just a few verses, James gives the answer to the problem. If the core problem is pride, the core answer must be humility. Genuine humility before God. And kind of full humility. This is the humility without which there are no answers to our problems. So do you want to see your problems stretch out unendingly into eternity? Underestimate the importance of humility. Convince yourself that you can know God and still be proud. Martin Luther said that only a humble man can receive the word of God. Apart from accepting God's honest assessment of our problem, no solution can be had. No answer can be found. The proud eye must bend itself into the sea of Christ and Calvary, of confession and crucifixion. In that sense, this paragraph is a wonderful representation of repentance. It shows that repentance is a humble act of submission to God which includes a choice to resist the devil and to draw near to God, a commitment to moral purity, both externally and internally, and a genuine remorse for one's sins. Do you know what the Bible talks about when it talks about repentance? These verses right here, one of the best pictures in the whole Bible, verses 7 to 10 in chapter 4 of James. Well, in our last two verses of our passage, James' core answer is applied to the immediate problem that he began with, the humility and speech about each other. So he says in verse 11, Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother 
or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So James here is putting what he says in verses 7 to 10 back into the situation of verses 1 to 6. In the situation in chapter 3, the problem with the tongue. He specifically challenges our proud speech about each other, particularly when we wrongly put ourselves in the position of evaluating someone else. James argues with them that when they judge their neighbor, they are in almost incredible pride taking the place of the only just judge, the one true God. And as if to shame these quarrelsome, pig-headedly proud teachers, James says, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Some of us who call ourselves Christians are like infants. We want what we want when we want it. We are slaves to our desires. Such believers, says James, are like armed camps, always ready to go to war, always quick to take offense, to see others as enemies. But we are not to be that way. It poorly reflects the gospel of Christ. Thomas Akempis, in his imitation of Christ, wrote, My son, now will I teach thee the way of peace and inward liberty. Be desirous to do the will of another rather than thine own. Choose always to have less rather than more. Seek always the lowest place. Wish always and pray that the will of God may be wholly fulfilled in thee. You see the necessity of true humility. If we try to assume the world, or more to the point here, I guess the church, must revolve around us and our needs, we will be sorely disappointed ourselves. And we will inhibit the health and the growth of the church. Humility is an essential ingredient in the life and health and growth of any church. Not a false humility. I'm not calling for a, a culture of just wretched Uriah Heap kind of false, humble statements. Chrysostom said about that, If we speak evil of ourselves a thousand times and yet are offended when another says anything of the kind, this is not humility. This is not a confession of sin, but only pretense and vanity. We take on the appearance of humility so that we may be admired and praised. Now, that's not the kind of humility I'm talking about. True humility is an essential ingredient in any church's life. And it is in ours as well. Capitol Hill Baptist Church will neither edify nor encourage nor even function well without real humility before God. That's why in our statement of faith it's so clear that we confess ourselves in becoming members of this church, we confess ourselves to be in need of God and his grace. No one can join this church confessing themselves to be prideful ultimately. We must admit that we are here not as self-righteous people, but as people who know ourselves to be devoid of righteousness and in utter need of God's grace in Christ. So do you see something then of the harmony and peace and how important that is? This kind of biblical peace that James is working for here reflects not dysfunction, but health. Reflects not stillness, but growth. It's not the peace that shows death, but life. Peace is God's special agenda. 
God is called in Hebrews the Father of God of peace. God the Son is called the Prince of Peace. God the Spirit is spoken of as the source of unity among Christians. God came to make peace, real peace with us. And it's a peace the world cannot know. You see, those who James says are of the world are those who are not at peace with God. And those who are not at peace with God only know peace and comfort in the most fleeting and temporary senses. They, might, they may buy themselves a nicer apartment, a nicer car, get a better career for a while. But those are all passing. Christians, on the other hand, know that any peace or comfort we currently have are only down payments of that which we will have. Our peace and comfort have not fully come to us yet. We're on the way to them and they're on the way to us. And when we arrive, peace and comfort will be with us fully forever. But for those who are not at peace with God, their peace is going from them every moment. And at one time, at one time it is sure to leave them without any hope of ever returning again. The important thing isn't so much where we are now, but where we're aimed, where we're going, where we'll end up. Building peace among ourselves, these very people in this room, is an evidence to ourselves and a witness to the world of the peace that we currently have with God and which we hope of having more fully forever. We show this with our words as they reveal our minds and our hearts. After all, what does it mean to say that we're followers of Jesus Christ who came and literally gave his life for others if we don't do that ourselves? Submitted to him, we can live as we never could live in our own proud independence. Broken before God, we can give testimony to his healing power. Humble before him, we can give testimony to his gracious peace in our hearts and in our minds and with our words as we live together as Christians. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that in your love you'd be isolating the selfishness in our own hearts, teaching us the truth and causing us to turn loose. Father, you have a complete claim on us, which every one of us in Adam and individually have rejected. Lord, we pray that you would in Christ forgive us We pray that anyone who is alienated from you and has not found peace with you, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would bring that peace even today. And we pray for us as your sons and daughters in this church that you would build this church to be an example of peace and unity which will commend the good news about Jesus to everybody who sees. We pray for your glory's sake. Amen.